We're in the red letter study. Red letter study. So we're talking through the words of Jesus in the New Testament using a harmony of all four Gospels. And so we're putting it together that way, trying to pull in all the details from all four of our of our of our Gospels to try to get a sense of what Jesus has been saying. Last week we talked through the Beatitudes. We did a quick overview, um, and we're going to now hit salt and light. Jesus is a master at metaphor. I don't know if you really thought through that too much. Um, metaphor after metaphor, he is this this rich well of all of this imagery. And, and everything is coming from his experience, the experience of the people around him. And so the metaphors that he introduces today, salt and light, come right out of the people's experience. It would have been immediately understandable to them, not so much to us. And that's the problem. That's the rub. Let's take a look at Matthew 5, right at verse 13. This is immediately after the last beatitude. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, as soon as we hear something like that, coming from our usual legal positions, right, our pay-to-play, performance-based um, concepts and worldview, we're already hearing condemnation here. We're hearing that there's something that we need to do, and if we don't, we're going to be thrown out. We have images of hell. We have images of hellfire. All of that is not present here. Remember, the Jews are based in the present moment, in the present life. They're not thinking about the afterlife. They don't even have a, a doctrine about the afterlife to this day. Jews are focused on this life. You can believe whatever you want to about the next life because we can't know about it anyway. And if you do everything you're supposed to do here, God in his infinite justice and wisdom and mercy is going to take care of everything in the next life. So we don't need to worry about it. So we're going to hear this all wrong, and we're not going to have a clue about what salt really means in a culture like this. And then he goes on, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Hear how he's just layering metaphor on top of metaphor? You have the salt of the earth, you have the light of the world, now you have a city on a hill, you have a lamp on a lampstand. All of these metaphors just create this tapestry that the people are going to resonate with because they know exactly what he's talking about. They have this experience in their lives as well. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. All right, so these are the two main metaphors. We have salt and we have light. But it's not a command. If what you're hearing here is Jesus saying, you need to be the salt of the earth. If you are the salt of the earth, then you are good, then you are worthwhile, then you are worthy, and if not, you're going to be thrown out and trampled upon. If you're hearing you need to be the light of the world, or else, we're hearing it wrong. These are not commands. These are you are statements. So what is he doing? In the Beatitudes, which were immediately before this, we talked about how Jesus is giving a description of the final product. He's talking to us about what this person looks like who has moved into kingdom, who has become kingdom values. Beyond that, and even more important than that, he's talking about God's nature. The Beatitudes describe God as poor in spirit, as humble, as vulnerable, as unassuming. That's his father. And if we move in 
into those values, if we move into that kind of understanding of what life is all about, then we will take on those values as well. So the Beatitudes are a description of God, God's nature, and what we will look like as we approach God. Salt and light are the effect that we will have on everyone around us should we get to this point. They're not commands. They're a description of what it looks like to live in kingdom. And now we're going to be talking about a description of what it's like to be around such a person, the effect that they're going to have on such a person. So we don't have any idea what salt means in that culture. For us, it's just table seasoning, right? You put it on your steak and it tastes good. You put it on whatever. It's a seasoning. In the modern world, and especially read refrigeration and antibiotics, once you've got refrigeration and antibiotics, salt takes a completely different position in your culture. But if you don't have those two things, salt is an absolute necessity for life. Really quickly, just think about a few of these things. Table salt, sodium chloride, one of the most important chemical compounds in life. The human body is approximately 60% salt water. That's the same salinity as seawater. So inside you, you got the ocean. Pretty cool, huh? You get that one for free. Now, humans and mammals can't function without salt in their diet. You ever heard of a salt lick? Come on, where are you 4-H people? A salt lick? Yeah, because, you know, what is a cow going to get of salt in the grass it eats? But salt's absolutely necessary for the animal. So the salt licks are just blocks of salt that the, that the uh, livestock owner puts out into the field. And they can lick the salt and they can get the balance that they need. We need salt, absolutely. Too much salt, not a good thing. Too little salt, also not a good thing. It'll be fatal for us. You know, why do you think your dog licks you? You think it's because the dog loves you? <laughs> You're the human salt lick. Come on. Nah, I know. Our dogs do love us. Salt, absolutely essential. It's one of, the four, uh, one of the four or five basic tastes that we have. And it's used as a seasoning and intensifies other flavors. Okay, we know about that part. Also, it kills bacteria by alkalinizing the environment. Bacteria like an acid environment and by extracting water from the bacteria cells. Ancients didn't know about bacteria, but they knew that salt works. So if you put salt in the wound, right, hurts like heck. But what it's doing, it's killing the bacteria. Now, they didn't know about bacteria. They didn't understand. But they knew that if they did that, the wound didn't go south on them, and they could heal from it. Before refrigeration, salted food preserved human life during the winter and during the droughts. You know, why do we have pickles? Why do we have pickled anything? It's all in a brine, right? Salt was used as a preservative for meats, for fruits, for vegetables. And the pickling process was all about preserving. If you didn't have refrigeration and you needed to live through the winter where you weren't going to be growing anything or harvesting anything, you had to preserve all of that. And you preserved it with salt. Salt was also used as a disinfectant. It was used as a cleanser through the Middle Ages, rubbed on tables and rubbed on counters to use for cleaning. In the Middle East and other areas that have highly acidic soil, it's not fertile for crops. Salt was used as a fertilizer in small amounts to alkalinize, I can't even say that word, alkalinize the soil. Now, British farmers used salt in their, in their, in their fields until World War II. They were still using salt as a fertilizer. 
And conversely, large amounts of salt would render the soil sterile. So invading armies would go through and they would sow salt into the soil and that would sterilize the soil for up to 10 years. And how devastating that would be for an area, for a people, that you couldn't grow crops for 10 years. That's how they made sure that the, the land they conquered was completely devastated. But it's a fertilizer in small amounts. Salt had three functions, therefore. It was to preserve food and preserve life, to fertilize new life, and to add test taste and zest to life, right? Preserve to be able to um, fertilize and then add vitality to life. It was so essential in the ancient world. It was a basis of the, of the ancient trade routes. Salt cakes, salt blocks were traded equally for gold and silver and fine cloth. We don't think of it this way. But salt was so essential in that culture, it was actually used as a currency. It was a source of tax revenue used as a currency in these ancient societies. And salt was so equated with preservation, with health, with wellness, that so many of our words that you don't even realize come from the word salt. Sal, S-A-L, is salt in Latin. And Latin is the basis for so many of our words in English, right? So, sal, salt, any word that we have that has S-A-L in it is also understood to be coming from salt. So, salus meant health in Latin. What do we say? We say salud, right? And we say for, for health and wellness when we're doing a cheer, uh, a toast. Um, salvus, soundness. Salvatio is salvation or deliverance. And also some of you who speak Spanish, you're hearing some Spanish words here. So a salvator is a savior. Saluto means to preserve or salutatio is a greeting. We say salute. That is still coming from the word salt. To wish health and wellness was to wish salt on somebody. And so a salute or a salutation, right, all comes from salt. Roman soldiers' pay included an allowance of salt. It was called a salarium. That's the word we get salary from, right? It's also the word we get sale from. And a soldier literally means one who is paid with salt or is worth his salt. And so soldier also comes from the word salt. It is so woven into the ancient culture that we, and we have no clue. We use these words, but we don't realize where they come from or why. The absolute essential ingredient was salt. It had a lot of symbolism, therefore, to the ancients. It was a symbol for endurance, for faithfulness, for preservation, for dependability, steadfastness, steadfastness purity, fertility. Ancient treaties and covenants, especially in the Near and Middle East, were ratified with an exchange of salt. Each person would eat a pinch of salt together or leave an open bowl of salt on the table in their common meal. And the common meal also meant peace and friendship, and it was sealed with salt. At Mark 9, verse 50, have salt in yourselves, have peace in one another. It means the same thing. That's a form of Hebrew poetry. To have salt in yourselves, what does that mean? Well, it means to have peace in yourselves, to have peace among yourselves. They would understand that in their culture. At Mark 9, 49, everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Well, salt was a preservative, but so was fire. Fire killed bacteria as well. They didn't understand that, but that's why they smoked meats in order to preserve it. But you could salt meats as well. So everyone would be salted with fire would mean that you were going to be purified in a way that would make you 
more connected to each other and to your God. Burnt offerings, before they burned them on the altar, were salted, according to Torah law. And that meant the the faithfulness and the purity of the offering that was being burned. Oil for anointing was salted as well for the same reason. And I don't know if you know this, but the holy water you Catholics enjoyed, you know, and we used, that also has a pinch of salt in it for the same reason. It's blessed by the priest and then salted. Rabbinical literature sees Israel as salt, a purifying agent among all of the nations. It also sees it as a city on a hill, which is interesting because Jesus is moving and mixing all these metaphors. It also is seen as a symbol of sharpness of wit, of wisdom, of knowledge, or wise or reserve skepticism. So Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be graceful, seasoned with salt. That means to be wise with your sayings, whatever it is you say. And taking someone with a grain of salt also means to be skeptical, right? All of this from salt. Who knew, right? But when Jesus talks about being the salt of the earth, this is what he's talking. He's bringing all of this to the table. All of this is coming up in people's minds. Maybe not everything, but they understand the essential nature of salt. They know what salt means in their lives. And so when he says that you are the salt of the earth, when you have moved into kingdom, you have become essential to the people around you, to yourselves, to your families, your communities, as salt is. That they understood. Preserve, fertilize, vitalize all of life, all of nature, all people. Now, let's talk about light, because we're going to have the same problem with light. Light, as used here, nura in Aramaic, does not just mean visible light. That's what we think about when we think about light. Yes, we do use it symbolically as well. But primarily, we're thinking about light. And when we think about the light of the world, we're thinking about visible light. But to these cultures, it also meant intelligence. It meant order. It meant harmony. It meant function. And if we compare light and darkness, maybe we can understand more about light by contrasting it with its opposite. Now, in the West here, especially in the modern West, we have this dualistic symbolism. We always compare and contrast things and and put them at opposite ends of a spectrum. Light and dark for us are stand-ins also for good and evil, which we also see at opposite ends of the spectrum, and usually in some sort of mutually exclusive cosmic opposition and fight with one another, good and evil always fighting. We see them separate. We see them as opposed to one another. Same thing with light and darkness. We see them as separate and opposed, mutually exclusive. They can't exist in each other's presence. Darkness we see only as the absence of light, a vacuum, the vacuum of space, a void. Nothing at all is darkness for us. But in Hebrew, Good and evil, light and dark, are not in opposition. They're continuums along a spectrum. They connect with each other along a spectrum. They're different, but they're complementary at the same time. And they're also necessary forces. They're necessary states of being, especially as they're being used here. Now, if you have your inserts, take a look. The, the, the graph there, the graphic, I should say, of lightness and darkness. We're going to talk about good and evil, 
light and dark and day and night and just try to get an idea of how this works. We've talked about goodness before, taba in Aramaic, which to that ancient culture meant ripeness. It meant something that could nourish, something that could, could fulfill, something that could preserve and keep life in the community. And then bisha, bad, would be all those negative ends of that spectrum, right? Unripeness, not able to, to nourish. When Jesus curses the fig tree, it's because it was bisha. It was not able to nourish him. It did not have fruit. And so here's a continuum. It's not just on and off dualistic binary code. There is a continuum from unripeness to ripeness. And everything is somewhere along that continuum. When we wonder how God can love us when we're acting so unripe, so unlovely, it's because he knows that we're on the continuum. He knows that we just need to grow further. He knows we're just not ready yet. All of this is a continuum. When you talk about Nura, light, and Heshuka, darkness, the light, Nura, can mean something that is seen, something that has straight lines to it. It's ordered. It's usable. It's functional. It creates function. It's complementary with Heshuka, with darkness, that is unseen, that is swirling and curved, that is chaotic, that is unusable, in terms of the way that we need to build things. We need to create things out of resources. The swirling nature of Ashuka makes that impossible for us. But the two are complementary. The two are necessary at the same time. You know, one of the problems that we have with God is that God is both light and darkness. We don't think of God as darkness because we think of darkness as evil. We think of darkness as the absence of all the goodness. But God is both. When we talk so much about God being mysterious in here, about God being unknown, when Jesus talks about the Spirit being like the wind that blows in and you can't see it, you can hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to, that's Heshuka. Those chaotic, unknown, untrackable energies that are so powerful like wind and water are what Heshuka is all about. And to us as human beings, God is Heshuka. He's unknown. We can't figure out. What does it say? God's ways are not our ways. We can't know how God operates. That's Heshuka. But at other times, it's straight and it's clear and it's understood and it's seen. Mostly we understand God in terms of our dealing with each other. That's in the light. That is something that we can see and understand that is usable and that is functional. But we need to alternate that with the unknown, with the mysterious, the paradoxical. If we don't, we'll never understand God. We'll never be comfortable with our God. And then finally, day and night, Yalma, Leila, alternating back and forth. And you can see how all these three are similar concepts and how they all work together. Yama, the day, rational, conscious, linear, just like neurolite, right? Straight, seen, usable, ordered. And then Layla, night, intuitive, unconscious, dreamlike. The day is the time when we use the light, those straight lines of rational consciousness, to be able to perform and do the things that we need to do. But we need to go home at night and we need to go to sleep and we need to dream and we need to let all those curved energies play through. That's where we assimilate the things that we have learned during the day. That's where we come up with new creative energy to be able to face the next day. 
How many times have you gone to sleep with a, a problem that you were working out and in the morning suddenly you had a solution to it? That's Layla. That's Hashuka doing its thing. The curved energies that take us intuitively someplace much faster than our logic would have gotten us there. So with this understanding that light is not necessarily visible, but it's understandable and it's ordered and it's functional, and that darkness is not necessarily blackness, now we can start to understand a little bit more about what's going on. Darkness is obscure and chaotic, unusable and unfunctional, but here's something to remind yourselves. It's unfunctional, but it's not dysfunctional. Ashuka, darkness, doesn't mean that it's bad, that there's something wrong with it. It's still good. It's still necessary. It needs to alternate and complement the light. Maybe to bring this point all the way home, let's go to Genesis 1, the light of creation, right? So Genesis 1, starting right at verse 1, verse 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. I don't know how many of you wondered this, but God creates light on day one, but he doesn't create the sun and the stars until day four. Has that ever bothered anybody? Okay, thank you. I'm not the only one. I was thinking about how in the, how in the world could this be right? But it's not about God creating visible light. It's about God creating order, creating function, creating a differentiation of roles and and distinction of those. Now, notice the darkness is older than the light, right? The darkness is older than the light. The darkness existed before there was light. And so what that is basically saying is that the earth, the universe, everything that is, was formless. It was chaotic. It was non-functioning. It was unusable for life. Now, when you think about the Big Bang, if you know anything about the Big Bang, for billions of years, if it's right, the theory is right, there was no possibility for life. It was just a hot gas cloud. But over time, it distilled and cooled and expanded, and then disks formed and planets and stars and everything formed and eventually it became habitable. Eventually it became usable for life. Genesis has condensed that down into six discrete steps and then God resting on the seventh. But it's the same idea here. It was chaotic and it was unformed. It was darkness. It was Heshuka. Then life and light, first light was created. So what did God bring when he created light on that day? When he brought order. He brought harmony. He brought support for life. And the word bara there that is translated as created doesn't mean create in the way that we think of creation as a magic trick. You know, just poof and things exist. It really has more the idea of building. God builded. In the beginning, God builded. or to differentiate, or to separate, or to allocate roles or functions. Notice how in the last here, God separated the light from the darkness. 
He's allocating their roles. He's allocating their spaces. He's allocating their times. So he does that for light and dark. He does that for water and land. He separates the water from the land. He separates male from female. He separates night from day. So he's making the distinctions that become the basis for life as we know it. That's the bara. That's the building part. That's the differentiating part. It doesn't just mean to call something into existence that didn't exist before by some supernatural means, but it means working with the elements that are there. It doesn't preclude creation as we understand it, but this is a further understanding. And so the dark precedes the light. There's another metaphor going on here. Just in the way that our primitive thinking, if you've heard of the id, that lizard brain part of ourselves, that part that evolved into a higher consciousness at some point, the primitive brain, the primitive thinking precedes the rational thought of the ego and the egoic consciousness. The unconscious precedes the conscious. We see that in every one of our children. We see this in our own life. Well, we don't remember it. But yeah, we were unconscious. And then we became actually conscious, self-aware. And so this idea of light also means an illuminated insight, if you will, a deeper understanding. And if we bring this back to Jesus now, He's telling us that we, when we get to this place where we have this illuminated insight, that we're bringing salt and light. Where? Well, to the earth and to the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Is that just two words that mean the same thing? They're actually different words in Aramaic and, of course, in our language as well. But where those are sort of synonyms, synonyms, Simonins. <laughs> oh, rented lips today. Boy. Um, synonyms for us, earth and world, they mean different things in Aramaic. So the salt of the earth, milkah dara, means earth in the sense of soil, ground, country, nature, all right? That kind of idea of earth. But the light of the world, nura dalma, means Dalma, Alma, really means eternity, age, generation, era. Well, how do you get world out of that? Because they were understanding in the sense of generational production that the, the, the world is always changing. It always presents a new face every time you look at it. It's kind of like the idea of you don't step into the same river twice. Same thing here. Every day you wake up, things may look the same, but they're really different. They're always changing. They're always moving. And so that was their idea of the world at a higher level. Yes, there was the soil and there was the ground and there was your country, but at this higher level, there's this production and these generations that they equated with eternity and with era and with ages. And so we are bringing the preservation, the fertilization, and the vitality to both physical life, the earth, the soil, the ground, all the living inhabitants, and also to this idea of world, order, harmony, and understanding to the spiritual realm at the same time. And both overlay, right? So we're bringing physical and spiritual elements of our lives into a unity, into a balance when we are salt of the earth and light of the world. Both are working at different planes but they connect. There's a harmony of purpose that occurs here. 
that is kingdom, as Jesus talks about it. And of course, as we are understood to be living between heaven and earth, the Jews understood human beings living between heaven and earth, between the unity and connection of heaven and between the individual form and function of earth, we're going to need both. We're going to need both salt of the earth and light of the world. And we can't do one without the other. Both are absolutely necessary. So he says, let your light so shine. He talks about a city on a hill. If you had a city on a hill, you can see it from everywhere, right? It can't be hidden. It is completely exposed. That's the idea. When this light is in you, it's like a city on the hill. It can't be hidden. It's going to be exposed. You are going to have this effect on everyone that you encounter. You're going to be leaving people better than you found them at every encounter. You won't be able to help it because you are salt and light on both of those planes. It has become who you are and not what you do anymore. What you do is just coming and flowing out of who you have become. You literally shine. You are the light. You shine. And then he says, well, you're not going to put your lamp under a bushel, are you? You're not going to put it under a basket. He's talking about how this light is going to shine. Can we veil it? I suppose we could. But he's saying, why would you want to do that? And what he's evoking here is just the basic living conditions of so many people at that time. It's another metaphor that he's using. The sheragah, the lamp or the candle, comes from the verb to illuminate, to imagine, and to dream. And a sata, a basket, is any round enclosure or a secret place or a veil or a shelter. Now, poor families would have to live in multifamily enclosures in multifamily homes. You know, we've talked about the layout of ancient Judean homes. And uh, for poor people, it would be one large room. Sometimes up to 50 people were living in one room. Multifamilies. They had dirt floors, and they had the sherah. The sherah was a, a living space. Uh, it was the, the platform or the area where they would actually live. They would sleep there. They would eat there. They would spend their time there because on the dirt floor were all the animals, you know, and they're doing what animals do. And so this is the, the living space, the platform. This is where there was no space for Mary and Joseph, not the inn, but the sherah, the living space within the home. So imagine a big room with multiple platforms, wooden platforms on dirt floor where different families were living. And they all had their oil lamps or their candles. And that's how they lit. The, as soon as the sun went down, it got really dark. And so these lights were lighting up their space so that they could continue to do whatever they did after sunset. But if, say a family ran out of oil. Well, a neighbor could also let them share their light. Or when they went to sleep, you could veil the light, put it under some sort of cover that uh, kept it from a family that was trying to sleep. These are the images that Jesus is evoking here. And of course, the people understand. Most of the people that he was talking to, most of the people that gathered around him were poor. And so, of course, they understood how all this worked. And so he's talking about this. You can shine your light. You can share your light with your neighbor. Or you can veil it. But why would you want to? Of course, unless they're sleeping. So let your be, let your light so shine. Let your life be the light that reflects, illuminates, and points to your Father in heaven. 
your Abba. Let your life be that. How do we do that? By doing good things? See, as soon as we think that way, then we're usually thinking legally again. We're thinking in terms of obedience to the law, obedience to rules, obedience to Jesus' commands. We're not going to be able to obey our way into kingdom. It's not by doing good things, but by being ripe. Because once we're ripe, then the good things are the natural things that flow out of us. Being ripe. Before doing, quote-unquote, light, we need to see the light. We need to become the light, the truth. We need to become free. Jesus said, if you follow my life, you know, the sum of everything that I'm teaching and doing here, then you will know a truth and the truth will make you free. That's the light that we're talking about. So when we ask, how do we become this light? Let's take a look at John 3. I'll just tell you what it is. Verse 19, the light came into the world, but man loved the darkness. Humans love the darkness. They love the chaos. I suppose it was what was familiar, right? It's what we know best rather than something else. So how do we learn to love light? Have you ever known someone who always seemed to be in chaos? Sometimes we call them drama queens or drama kings. I don't want to be sexist here. But it's almost as if they were, not almost as if they were creating the chaos. You know, they didn't realize that. But they had gotten so used to chaos, so used to trauma in their lives, anything else felt foreign, felt uncomfortable. And so they kept recreating chaos, chaotic arrangements, chaotic relationships. We've all known someone like that. Some of them, how many of you remember Peanuts, the cartoons? I mean, it's, okay. I, this crowd, I'm pretty safe, right? You all remember, remember Pigpen, right? Yeah, wherever he went, there was that cloud of dirt and dust going around. It's kind of like that, or the little Abner character that was always under a rain cloud. I mean, these are the folks that we're talking about here. So familiar with darkness, so familiar with chaos, not comfortable, or actually terrified of light, of order, of calm, of harmony. So many, many people I've talked to, they get really anxious when things are going right because they're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. They're waiting for the next thing to go wrong. They can't enjoy when things come into focus, when things come into nura, into light. And often they will go ahead and sabotage the situation just to get it over with. I know it's coming anyway. This is what we're dealing with. The light has come into the world. The light has always been in the world. But we love the darkness. We gravitate toward it. It's what we know best. It's what we're comfortable with. And so many of us get stuck in the chaos. We get stuck in the trauma. It becomes the norm for our lives. And so that id, right, that primitive childlike mind that has no sense of time whatever, keeps recalling the trauma as if it just happened, as if it were happening now. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The reality we believe is the reality that we endure. So if we're going to change that, we really got to get to the point that we desire something else so much, that we desire calm, that we desire harmony so much that it actually exceeds our fear. Once our desire exceeds our fear, now 
change is possible. Now things can happen. But at the same time, we need to recognize the nature of enlightenment itself because it doesn't come all at once. I told this story before. For some of you, it may be new. But uh, a farmer's mule falls into a well. And it's down there at the bottom of the... It's a dry well. It's down there at the bottom of the well. And it's braying and it's complaining. And he's trying to figure out how they're going to get it out. And they, send, they try to tie lines to it. They try to do this. They try to do that. And they finally give up. And they say, there's no way we're getting this mule out of this well. I've been meaning to just fill it in anyway. So I'm we're just going to bury him down there, fill in the well, and so long mule. And so they put a shovel full of dirt down there, and the mule screams because realizes what's happening here. And another one, and another one. After a while, the, the mule is silent, and he's not, he's not braying anymore. He's not complaining anymore. And so they look down. They, another shovel full of dirt hits his back. He shakes it off and steps up. Shakes it off and steps up. And eventually, he just walks out of the well. That's the way enlightenment works. To us who are, you know, longing for a change, if we were at the bottom of that well, we would want straight lines to be dropped to us that we could grab onto that would pull us directly into the light. But that's not the way it works. It's shovelful by shovelful of dirt. We shake it off and we step up. We shake it off and we step up. Each tragedy, each trauma, each loss is a shovelful of dirt. We shake it off and we step up. If we will do that, we are moving into the light by means of endarkenment. Frank Billman used to hate that word whenever I used it, but endarkenment. It's a curved nature. The straight rays of the sun are not going to be able to penetrate that small well or the curved walls around it. It's going to take curved energies to do that curved forces to be able to move and they are going to come at us sideways not in the ways that we expect and literally until we let go of our egoic minds with all the straight rational thought can these other energies come in and bring us up into the light remember the darkness is older than the light we approach first through the curved powerful energies of Heshuka and then we move into Nura and once we start to understand the nature of this, then the process, once our desire has exceeded our fear, the process can actually take place. It's an indirect layering up into light, which is exactly Jesus' teaching style, right? He's very Zen master-like in this. We'll never answer a question with a straight answer, but also always with another question, with a story, with another metaphor, with something that will move us along these curved routes so that we can start to layer up. It doesn't even feel like learning. It feels more like unlearning. It is unlearning. And most importantly, it just feels like living life, but with intent, intentionally living life, actually noting the experiences that you have and how they are layering you up, shaking it off and stepping up. That's what it feels like. And we realize later that progress has been made. Like a workout routine, you don't feel the progress right away. You notice it later if you keep showing up to the workout over and over and over. Or like musical training, you know, the horrors of the practice room, scales up and down and doing the things that you do. But you realize later 
Those scales are now a part of you. You don't have to think about them anymore. They're there when you need them, and now you can purely make music. You're not thinking about the mechanics anymore. This is the feel of Jesus' way. And so beaten over and over from Jesus' message is that we got to practice this. We need to keep showing up, and not showing up to get rewarded for what we do, but showing up because it's becoming who we are. We want this so deeply that we will keep showing up in the dark with nobody watching, nobody applauding, to just keep practicing over and over, ongoing, disciplined, structured, so that we can start to wake up in our moments, become aware of what's really going on, make different choices that take us into completely different relationships. Or one more metaphor, urban warfare. I like that one. House by house and block by block, right? You don't do it all at once. Step by step. And all through this, we have to be willing to let go of everything that we're clinging to. As Jesus would say, sell everything so that you can buy the field in which you already found the treasure. You got to know where the treasure is, but you don't just take it home. You need to sell everything to be able to buy the field in which the treasure lies. That's another metaphor for the way that this works. When we are ready to let go of everything that blocks us from this kingdom, then we actually own the field. Then we have actually remapped our brains, reset the default. We have finally begun to trust God, others, life in general. And now we can drop our shields. Now we can connect. Now we can live in a fearless vulnerability. Now we can become salt and light. And now we can live the effect of kingdom on everyone that we meet, everyone that we're in community with, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus is telling us, if you will follow this way, this way that I'm laying out, then you will slowly learn to love the light to love the harmony, to love the connection, the order, the unity that gives meaning and purpose to the darkness, to the curved energies of life that are absolutely necessary, but we won't understand them until we bring the two together, darkness, light, salt, and light. Unity, rationality, paradox, and mystery can we comfortably learn to live in the middle of that kind of mixture? That's where Jesus is taking us. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot. This is a lot to process. There's so much, so much depth in just a few lines of your scripture. It's amazing how much is there. We don't need it all. But if everything that we've talked about this morning can just plant a few seeds, point us in a different direction, help us to disabuse ourselves of certain notions that we're limiting and, and keeping us facing wrong directions that never got us where we really want to go with you, then it's useful. So we pray that something has stuck this morning, even if it's just one thing that we can use to move ourselves along. Make us more and more tolerant of being able to accept the shovelfuls of dirt on our back, to shake them off and to step up 
and realize that every time we do, we're stepping closer to the light, closer to you, closer to the kind of connection that will make our lives sing. So thank you, Father, for your love and constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.